In 1874, the British government passed a series of laws called the Regulation of Public Worship. A lot of people cared an awful lot about church back then. True. On one side, people wanted more ritual and ceremony. On the other side, they wanted mostly none. In the midst of the battle, one minister, a rector in London at a church called St. George in the East, had stopped a practice whereby people who volunteered in church services could avail themselves of liquor from the rector's cupboard before and after the service. The Reverend King closed the cupboard. We have opened it again. Welcome to the rector's cupboard. Order. So welcome to Rector's Cupboard, indeed, and uh, this is our first episode of season four. It's fantastic. Um, and what a way to start, because uh, our topic today and the book that we're considering brings together some things that have uh, we've, we've brought together at Rector's Cupboard before, and that is uh, tasting and then consideration of some spiritual themes. Joining us today is Nelson Boschman, who, uh, in reference to the tasting that we're about to do, uh, refers to himself as a wine enthusiast. Um, But uh, we already know that he knows quite a bit about wine. So Nelson is a pastor and a writer and a spiritual director and a jazz musician, a wine enthusiast, a husband, father, uh, living in Vancouver, British Columbia. He's the pastor of spiritual formation at Artisan Church, and also a partner of soulstream.org, a community that seeks to nurture contemplative experience with Christ, leading leading to inner freedom and loving service. Um, We're going to talk today about his book, The Growing Season, but before we delve particularly into the book, there's a number of us here who are in studio, um, and so we're pleased to be here, and Nelson has some well, I'm going to say great wine. We haven't even tasted it yet. <laughs> yeah, we don't but know. But I'm assuming you didn't bring terrible exactly. wine. Yeah. You could have done that too. Um, and uh, he's all set up here for us to do the tasting. So going to hand it over. Our cupboard master is here, Ken Bell. Hello, it's so, good to be here. So Ken has... But uh, I'm handing the, hand, handing the mantle over to someone who knows more. Yeah, so, that's so nice. Ken will also ask some questions. Know your limits and, is an important so, thing. So thank you very much, Nelson, for joining us and uh, lead us through the tasting. That's great. Yeah, so um, I... I've chosen two red wines from France, uh, and particularly the Southern Rhone region. And uh, as I read my favorite, one of my favorite wine blogs, Wine Folly, there's no place like Rhone. So that's, that's we're in the right place, effectively, and hopefully the wine is good, as we've <laughs> said. Yeah, and so we're kind of doing a little bit of a side-by-side comparison. So both from the Rhone Valley, but within the Rhone Valley, there are these sub-appellations and uh, different classification kind of systems. Both these wines are from uh, what's the top classification within the Rhone Valley. One is from Caran and the other is from Gigondas. And uh, the Caran is from the producer Boutineau and uh, the Gigondas is from Domaine Brousset or Brousset. Um, and the Gigondas is a 2020, and the Caran is a 2018. So both relatively young. They are about a four-minute drive apart. But what is in- always interesting when you're tasting more than one wine is to notice that even a geographical distance that mm-hmm. is that tight, there can be pretty remarkable mm-hmm. differences in the wines themselves. And so I'm told that uh, one of the, one of the um, uh, defining aspects of the terroir or the somewhereness of the southern Rhone is uh, the Mistral 
the winds, which are, I think the translation is miserable, I think. Mm -hmm. it's, like, it's a wind that's so that's windy. That's a term in it's, cycling all the time for that region right, too, the Mistral. Mistral. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so Chateau Neuf de Pop, which is, um, again, loosely translated the Pope's new crib, uh, is a, is a semi-famous, probably the most famous subregion within that. It's very, very close geographically to Caran in particular. Um, and the winds are significant there. And I'm, I'm told that Caran, it's similar. Is mm. there so? And both of these wines, you were saying to us about. before that both of these wines, you can get them just at BC Liquor. That's store. right. Yeah, they're just under, under just under forty bucks a bottle. That's right. Yeah. Okay. All right. Let's try them. I see. Where do we start? Give it a go. I'll just pour a bunch of uh, the Caran first here. Just a couple ounces of each, and that's the best sound ever. <laughs> sound of wine being poured. Okay. So yeah, hold them by the stem, or even by here, if you're comfortable enough doing that. Um, <laughs> and sure and so one of, the, one of the things that is so important to do is to look at it. I see some of you have already been doing that. that I, I like to have a, um, some, a white background, if at all possible, just to notice the color. And then to uh, give it a good swirl. And so when people who enjoy wine are swirling their glass they're not just trying to look pretentious or cool at least most of them <laughs> some are it's because the uh 80 of the wine experience is olfactory it happens through the sense of smell even once it hits your palate so you're missing out by not swirling and then getting your nose in the glass and really sniffing and enjoying it and so that's to look swirl sniff are the first three kind of steps and then you need it? to sip again this one this is the caran and um Hmm, that's lovely. Uh, a friend uh, enjoys this one on the regular, mm -hmm. and so I recommended it. Are there typical things from this region that you would get, or does that, I mean, I'm assuming also the specific kind of grapes that you're planting and how grapes. it's processed. Like, it seems like a very, there's a huge amount of variables that actually go into what ends up in a glass, but are there That's typical right. things from like this sort of region that you would expect with a French wine? Absolutely. Yeah, so within Southern Rhone, the, the three big players are Grenache and Syrah and Mouved. Those are the three grape varietals that are, that are most often used and they're quite frequently blended. So mm -hmm. uh, both of these would be GSM blends. Or it's, okay. it's that well known of a blend that it's, they shorthand it to GSM. So Grenache, Syrah and Mouved. It's not too assertive. Like it, it drinks really. Like I tend more towards white than than reds, reds and because I find that reds can be a bit intense for yeah. me. But this this is nice. Like it, it's not too heavy. It's not mm. too like. Yeah, you're right. To it doesn't feel like it's kicking you in the mouth. Yeah, I would characterize this as a medium body. Mm -hmm. This is not full bodied, mm -hmm. and when you think of body, it's helpful to think of like skim milk whole milk and cream. Yeah, like how it feels yeah, in your mouth. Yeah, it's viscosity, texture, that sort of idea. And and then even by looking at it, you can sometimes tell some of that. But Going further into kind of the tasting world, like yeah. we have a place, tasting placemat in front of us yes. here that you've given us that has all kinds of categories to think about. Totally. Um, well, for each one, like fruit, flower, spice, herb, earth, other. And then you've got this tasting wheel that you say you use a fair bit. You refer to it's it It's like a beautiful book. little color There's wheel. There's a lot of categories <laughs> in here. This would be the kind of thing that you can say, like, what do you, what do you taste in there? Right. And then yeah. someone would say, like, I taste ginger and fig or something, right? And that, That's right. Like, have you... So you, you actually do taste those things because sometimes, like... For those well, of us I, who aren't that experienced, it sounds like 
It tastes it, like wine? It's the same thing it tastes with coffee. like red wine. Right? The same thing with coffee where it's like, totally. it, it's got this and this and this. Yeah. So how do you get to that place where you develop the palate? Yeah. I think a lot of tasting, like yeah. just, just doing, doing it, you just practice. <laughs> it really is that thing. What are you tasting in this, Nelson? Yeah, I get, like, I'm curious I get, to know what you think is mm-hmm. probably, I don't know. And I would love to hear from the rest of you the as well, because sometimes <laughs> some really interesting stuff comes up. Yeah, and this one, I get... I finished mine already. So. <laughs> yeah. Some of that so plum. Yeah. I was just say some, some of plum, strawberry. Yeah, I get a bit of that leather. I get a bit of spice, a little bit of licorice. But it's all uh, just so nicely like yeah. balanced together. Nothing mm-hmm. is standing out and saying like, oh, this right. is so... Huge. There's a part in your book, I think, I'm trying to remember, where you talk about uh, there's a gathering, a social gathering you have with friends or something, <laughs> and yeah, you, you were going to bring them wine and do it, and then you kind of realize partway through... <laughs> They don't care. <laughs> they just, like, just open the wine and enjoy the wine. You bring this kind of, yes. and that, that's that, that's the kind of dynamic, right? That's interesting. Where, yeah. it, it you know people enjoying it, being glad there's wine there, but not right. necessarily. And so it's more knowing your audience. Totally, also. it's knowing your audience. I didn't quite read the room. Well, I was sort of waiting in the in the next room, and I saw my bottle. It wasn't again thirty thirty five dollar bottle, so it wasn't like the yeah, top of my collection. Yeah, but a lot of them are nine ninety nine, Yeah, you're still. Oh yeah. I was pretty keen to try it. I wanted to maybe enjoy it with some people like I am now with y'all. And uh, so, yeah, so for a while, I'm standing in the kitchen talking with three or four people and and none of the bottles were being opened. I just sort of thought, that's fine. Yeah, no problem. I'll just leave it where all the other bottles were. It was one of the first ones there. Uh, but then sooner or later, someone actually opened it and I noticed it. And then I... And it's, to them, it's to break it? away it's the conversation. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah it's just maybe didn't know, maybe did yeah. know. <laughs> Which we don't nice know. Label. Totally. Yeah. And it was a huge red wine glass, like speaking of glassware. Yeah. And oh, this person no. filled it. No room to swirl. And it was... And uh, part of you slightly die only, inside. Yeah, absolutely. It's just <laughs> okay. like, oh, there it goes. I'm not going to get to try this tonight. You didn't saunter up beside them and go, yeah. do you know what you're drinking there? <laughs> 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 like, Gone. So should we try the other? Yeah, yeah let's pour. Of if so you can keep... Glasses, right? Yeah, let's We've do... We've got the glasses. Why not? Glasses. So... I can already go. smell a difference. What's yeah. hard is I'm like, I can smell that it is different, but I can't, I can't articulate how it's different. When you compare them right. side by side, you can see that... The first one we tried is a lot darker, so you oh, get more of the browns oh, and stuff so much in it. This one when you, you can it from almost one to see the other. through. What you're yeah. yeah, no, this uh, right away on appearance. If if I were asked which one's the younger wine, I would guess this one. Yeah. Less the brown. Second one? Yeah. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah it, I mean, it just it looks older. And it is. It is. Yeah. It's younger. Yeah. So which one mm. do you do you like better? Taking into account the fact that one is two years older than the other, so it's had a bit more chance to mature. If you yeah. were to grab one and say, this is what I want to drink tonight. I like them both. I, I would take I the old the, one. I think I prefer the first. Yeah. The first one. yeah. Mm-hmm. I like, well, I mean, when I taste it after the second one, Ooh. all of a sudden I'm tasting, there's like a sweetness to it. There's mm. almost like a porty kind of aspect to it mm. that mm-hmm. is more accentuated in contrast to the other. I'm picking up um, almost a cedar. Yeah. Mm. Like a, a Which I think Nelson got on the first pass. <laughs> totally. No, well, yeah, I mean, but some of that wood. So absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, longer. the aromas are beautiful in this one, the Caron, right now. Yeah, I, I feel like, like they're really, yeah, it's opening up quite a lot. Very expressive. I find wine yeah. very intimidating. Like, I... Yeah, it is. <laughs> well, well like, you, you walk into a store and I'm like, well, I, I don't know which to select of these hundreds of totally. different bottles. 
Um, so I, I appreciate people who are a little further down that path and going, no, you should try this one. And I think that's actually what I appreciate about the wineries. Yeah. Because they're not um, intimidating. They're not. No, the first time I went in one, I kind of had this idea of like, oh, I don't belong here. Yeah. Right? Because there's this, this kind of... Some of the wineries sentiment. In, some of them some can, of them be, can pretty snotty, be pretty truthfully. snotty, truthfully. Um, but yeah. there's others, especially some of the smaller ones. People are absolutely lovely, and they just enjoy totally. what they do and what their craft is. Um, and the people that work there are locals, yeah. typically. That's right. Um, and they, like you said, they speak very highly about the other right. um, wineries around yeah, them. Oh, if you like this, you should go down the road and try these guys as well. Mm. They had a great year or whatever. That's right. yeah. um, and I found that actually to be a way that I enjoyed learning more about wine than yeah. walking into a liquor store, like Allison was saying, and just looking at a bunch of labels thinking, well, totally. that's a great label, so why not? Yeah. 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 And I feel like it really only takes, it takes a little intentionality to get mm -hmm. past that place of intimidation and what can help certainly are like, yeah, websites and, you know, yeah. just learning. Mm -hmm. But for you to learn one, two, three wines, maybe one or two whites, one or two reds, if you like, a, yeah. a, you know, a variety, mm -hmm. and to go into perhaps not a BC liquor, right. mm -hmm. but to a, a local wine store where you know they have some people who do care and they're not wanting to um, right. lord their knowledge or something over you, but they're actually mm -hmm. there to try to help you. You can say, well, I'm interested in this kind of style of, of red wine, but I'm interested in exploring some other things or, and just learning a little bit of the language uh, around mm -hmm. what to ask for. And there's lots of, and in restaurants too, if you get the privilege to go to a place that has a sommelier or a wine director right. or something on site, to, they're usually uh, very willing and warm and mm -hmm. able to, to so, teach you a little bit to make sure. Well, thank so. you so much. I suppose yeah. we should go I over go to over the, over to the uh, Sure, sure. This is good times. Well, Nelson, thank you for walking us through the tasting. Um, it was a great that experience. Was good. And I haven't had such a thorough, like, Tasting. And we I mean, still I have wine here. Those in, of us who are on the, the mic still have defense. wine. Those of us who are on the oh, everybody in the room still has wine. Fantastic. Ken has like four or five glasses behind. <laughs> <laughs> all the wine. <laughs> you look great over there, Ken. Ken's like, I'll just um, take it all. But the but the tasting was fantastic and and uh, awesome. As as I'm thinking about your book, which is fantastic and um, pastoral, mm -hmm. caring, mm -hmm. but also personal. And so without being, you know, you and I having shared some professions, some, I, I don't do a lot of, you know, jazz music playing, um, but, uh, um, it's a shame I feel. Uh, yeah, I know. I, I, I enjoy listening and you're fantastic and I love going to Christmas presents and everything else. And, but as I'm watching you, uh, walk us through the tasting, um, I'm thinking also about your, your work experience, your, your pastoral experience, um, uh, what it means to care for a community and how this world of wine has been um, uh, the, the small word to use would be blessing mm. uh, the bigger word to use would be uh, a place where you, you clearly have found uh, comfort mm. mm -hmm. uh, safety, meaning identity Knowing this work and in, in church work that it, it can be it's 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 a gift for sure we're grateful for it I, I know you would say the same but for you it seems in reading your book and then even in sharing this experience that this has been for you a place where you've been able to find kind of who you are in ways that the church actually doesn't fully allow mm. least least in service right so so thanks for taking this time with us and we're really pleased to speak with you. Um, your book, The Growing Season, um, that was just out this year, 
right? Mm-hmm. That's coming right, up yeah. this year. And we'll have ways that people can get a hold of it and read it and such. Um, but obviously set up as a, as you said yourself, a metaphor, but, you know, uh, wine and vineyards and such um, as having something to teach us about the spiritual life or to consider about the spiritual life. Your book is divided into sections, and you say this right at the beginning, soil, vineyard, harvest, cellar, bottle. Um, so tell us about that division, just to start. It's a nice, yeah. neat way to get into the conversation. Yeah. It, um, I am intrigued by these different components and, and certainly feel um, to varying degrees out of my element in talking about them in terms of the wine world itself, which was partly what drove me to wonder about an apprenticeship when I had a sabbatical back in uh, 2018. And I knew that I had a sabbatical as early as fall of 2016. So then I started to dream and to scheme about it. Exactly. (laughs) You didn't want to like do more pastoral work or write a book or do whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Or go to a seminary or something. It was really the first opportunity I had to have a sabbatical. So I started to like, uh, what do you do on a sabbatical and, or what's the best kind of teaching? And I think I came across an article that had something to do with like um, 10 best questions to guide your sabbatical thinking. And a few of those points were like, find a different geography, mm-hmm. use a different part of your brain. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Use it as an opportunity to, if you need kind of some more study, that sort of thing. Great. Um, if you want to expand some other areas of, of your, or sharpen your kind of your toolbox, that's a good thing to do as well. And so, so immediately uh, this sparked this sort of this idea that, well, I'm pretty enthusiastic about wine and I've already begun by just my heart, heart, mind, soul, body just really Mm. is interested in asking more questions about what goes into making this incredible, Mm -hmm. precious kind of liquid and and then recognizing that, well, Jesus seemed to think it worked pretty well Mm -hmm. as a metaphor (laughs) on some levels. (laughs) He does use it quite a bit. Yeah. And, uh, and and Old Testament as well, Hebrew images of, you know, abundance and all those sorts of things. So, um, yeah, so I began to wonder uh, whether this could be possible to spend some more time with a little bit of more full-fledged experience because mm-hmm. up to that point, my experience was only what appeared in the bottle and then in my glass. Right. And a conceptual awareness that soil is a thing, terroir is a thing, somewhereness, harvest, yeah. vineyards, all of those sorts of things. And, and the vine again, the vine and branches imagery, of course, um, sure. in scripture. But to get some sense of those prior steps firsthand was the goal. Um, and then when I began to think, maybe I could actually do some writing around this mm-hmm. um, to structure the book that way felt kind of like a no-brainer. So it's so, like, well, mm. I understand that the spiritual journey is often far from linear. Um, and to some degree, the winemaking process can be that way as well. But in its, in its essence, it, these are uh, components that will always flow in this direction. So there are seasons, mm-hmm. you know, there is the growing, there's the planting season, there is the growing season, there is the harvest, there is the aging and cellaring and all of that kind of stuff too. So um, yeah, I just thought, well, let's let's have some fun with uh, with that structure and see if we can play with the ways in which those seasons, those aspects of the growing uh, of growing wine, mm-hmm. uh, reflect, mirror, complement, um, depart from, <laughs> um, speak into, inform um, the human spiritual journey. Yeah. Is there one of those areas that stands out more for you or that you're most interested in, like soil, mm. vineyard, harvest, cellar, bottle? That's great. Um, 
Well, one sort of common, uh, um, I guess, denominator of my experience uh, as an apprentice was the cellar, but that tied me both to, it, it moved back into the vineyard because uh, from the cellar, I was often taken then on walks to meet some of the farmers. And uh, when the fruit comes, here's what's going to happen. Um, and then in the cellar was exposed to the aging process and blending and all of those different mm -hmm. aspects. Um, and, and then harvest as well. So I, had, I got to work for a month in the growing season. Um, mm -hmm. And I took, it took a few days, again, to understand what happens in, in the vineyard and understand a little bit about soils as well. Um, but then I returned about a year and a half later mm -hmm. to do a week of harvest. So barely a drop in the bucket. And not, not sabbatical at that point. That's right, yeah. No, it was yeah. just my own kind of thought. I kind of felt it's a bit of a rite of passage for anyone that's in the wine industry. And I don't consider myself an industry kind of person, right. but I've been given 10% discounts because Ooh. people find out that <laughs> I've written a book on the it. The best so discount, this is good. 10%, give you a, yeah. which feels uh, like good on you, man. I feel insulted. <laughs> totally. Yeah. So seller stands out and the relationships that I made there with uh, the winemakers at the time at Incomeep. Um, so I really appreciated those connections as well and their, their generosity and willingness to show me uh, the ropes and to invite me into their daily experience. I, I found your book, first of all, uh, I think I read about 90% of it while I was sitting in the ER with my son as he was having croup for like the like fourth time. Like a lovely time. vineyard. Like a lovely vineyard. There was yeah. something that I was like, with he the, was sleeping on me. I was reading on my phone. It was, the yeah. basket. It, it felt very pastoral to me um, as you were talking about suffering and yeah. talking about hardship and all these things. And I'm like, yes, I am in a hospital at mm. this moment. But I think one of the, one of the stories that you talked about that, that really kind of connected with me a lot was you talked about, oh, I'm hoping I'm getting the name right here. Is it Andy the Hungarian? Yeah. And where you talk about how with the wild mustard that he brings in and to help control the pests. And like, first of all, like I, I feel like my, the, the book kind of, even just with, like you say, you're an enthusiast, not an expert. And so, but even with the, the lack of knowledge that I have, I felt like I learned so much and I can mm -hmm. appreciate my glass of wine that I have right. so much more knowing what goes into creating it. But you, you spoke of this, of this gentleman and you talked about how you drew a connection with the parable of the wheat and the weeds and like that in that moment just was, it was so beautiful. And it was so just like you, you quote Richard Rohr and you talk about like, just, just leave it up to God. That's God's it's risky, but it's God's thing to do. And I think that was one of my favorite mm. kind of components of the story. And I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to kind of like, you spoke a lot about the, the uncertainties and the struggle of, mm. of like the vines and the tension that the farmers have with like, how much do you so do? How much do you difficulties let? Difficulties and challenges. It's incredible. Yeah, yeah. Like, can you speak to kind of, what some of those experiences were for you and how they then cued you to make these, these parallels, these, these metaphors for, for these aspects of spiritual life and life in general in some ways. Yeah. Yeah, I can a little bit. Again, my vineyard uh, days uh, were very minimal, two or three, where I was out and got to basically do a, um, a tour of several different vineyards that Incomeep was sourcing grapes from. And, um, yeah, it began, it just kind of scratched the surface, like tip of the iceberg, those yeah. sorts of images of opening up what all could go wrong. At that point in time, they were talking about cutworm, which is another yeah. a little pest that it was sort of talking about in one of those early chapters mm -hmm. and uh, what the damage that they can, uh, they can wreak on um, a vineyard. 
And um, so it was, yeah, it, to, I think what stood out, I guess, in that time was to, to witness the care and attention yeah. that each of these vineyard bosses then and the individual workers uh, take to tending to this thing. Because it's a, it's a long, slow process. A lot could go wrong. A lot does, can, and, and will inevitably kind of go wrong. But then how do we sort of pivot from that and, and uh, mm-hmm. address it? How do we be proactive in, in the ways that we know how to do um, and then if something is completely surprising, then how do we sort of bounce back from that? And so, yeah, I think the adaptability, flexibility, willingness to... Yeah, there's almost this presumption of like failure that seems like it's built into the process. Totally. Yeah, I was going to say it's almost like anticipation of failure. <laughs> <laughs> yep, um, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I, that's hard to think about yeah. like in life. And I mean, I, th- I think that there's, there's a lot of very good parables with that and like in just general life, I'm... Mm most people that you know have gone through something that is hard, something that is unexpected, something that is, is difficult. And just to go, I I think that that there's part where, and I don't know if it's part of, you know, the Western exceptionalism that we think and like scientific revolution, we think that like we have everything figured out Mm. and it's very humbling to realize how little we actually do and it seems like there there may be a greater awareness with people like like farmers, people who grow living things, deal with living things, that they expect that things are going to end up inevitably going wrong at some point. Something's not going to go. It's okay. probably you know there's so so much good in the book, but 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 as is often the case uh, when you begin to speak about suffering, that can resonate with readers in a way that. Uh, mm. um, and. I was interested in reading the book again, kind of considering from the aspect of being a pastor and a minister and someone who's like in spiritual care for people and mm. how this sabbatical and this experience was spiritual care for you. Mm. You speak about some of the suffering, both vocationally and otherwise in, in your own life. Um, I could imagine on a sabbatical where there's often lots of meaning packed in, but there's, but there's also just like you're there at the vineyard that day and doing the tour. But, right. but at the same time, um, how was this, experience spiritual care for you Mm. yeah that's good i think part of the thing um about a sabbatical in general um and i have a colleague who just got back from his first sabbatical as well and his one of his awarenesses was that uh the sabbatical gave him permission to shrink his circle of care um and and as a pastor sometimes even if it's a small parish or small congregation it can feel overwhelming that 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 circle of care the people for whom you have some degree of responsibility for and then that's that there's even a sub sort of theme there about again what is mine to hold with this with this particular individual yeah. or this particular congregation at this particular time covid has its own of course mm-hmm. overlay and a massive sort of part of that whole story um but that was one of the ways as well that i'm reflecting that's just good language for that is permission to do that to yeah. to show up and say oh what are we doing today just be there I'm being in, in the vineyard place. being present with these particular grapes right. so there's a simplicity aspect there too that i'm very drawn to in the whole kind of wine world there is complexity and layers and all of that stuff too but um what is it like yeah what does it mean to live simply what does it mean to pastor simply mm-hmm. is that even possible yeah. in this sort of day and age and how do we ascribe to that so I'm very drawn to the monastic sort of contemplative <laughs> sure. stream right. and the yeah, secrets that, that they have me. learned yeah. around that of course and so uh yeah so something about that it was there was freedom there uh to experience that and then 
and then to care for my family I had a two and a half year old at that time yeah. and she was in full toddler defiance mode yeah. that entire time so there were hard aspects of just and returning with you home. with you at the place yeah okay. so not in the days but no uh, but yes. yeah yeah within that 30 days i think i had actually 10 working days so the rest was you know had two or three days each week kind of spaced out okay. over the time and uh so it wasn't a grand sort of yeah. lot but a lot of it was recognizing my wife and daughter need yeah. uh some care attention as well and this is a particularly hard season for our family and for our daughter sort of adjusting yeah. just being a two and a half year old mm. and us to uh to connect with that as well so yeah i think there is some but the sabbatical in general back to sort of your original question yeah. had that that sense of uh there's a spaciousness there to well only care about the family only care about in particular, I still well, and, care about the people that are still there. And to also to be yeah. taught, to be listen taught, to somebody yeah. else who's more of an expert. Yeah, to be a learner, yeah. To hear what they say about the vine and the land and the, and then to, I'm thinking of obviously, you know, the old the Gerard Manley Hopkins, like Christ plays in 10,000 places, right? right? Yeah. How, and when we're talking about hopeful theology or how people have pushed away from some, what they would call traditional models of church or whatever, in some of these places, that's where you can hear Christ, see Christ sometimes more. Right. Um, even by, even and particularly by people who aren't seeking to tell you, you know, here's what you need to know about discipleship. They're talking about grapes. Yes. Or you're seeing <laughs> how much they care about something, how much they pay attention That's right. to something. And of course, attention in the spiritual life, right? Which you also yeah. refer to that, this Simone real quote. Yeah. Right? I was going to say, yeah. That's right? com- like that comes it, up a lot. Yeah. Attention yeah. is the same thing as prayer. It presupposes faith and love, right? That you would witness these. And so to be in that place of being, you know, ministered to, mm. but it's just people telling you how they do this. Totally. But, uh, and, and that I think really does come out in the book. And, and mm-hmm. if, if you're, I mean, we all listen differently. It's like tasting, I guess. I'm listening as someone who shares the vocation of pastor or whatever right. with you. So it's, um, another thing I was interested in the book is this, you've heard to it a couple of times in the tasting and in conversation, the notion of somewhereness. Mm-hmm. It's early in the book and you speak about your own life and your own kind of, there's a bunch of places you're from. You don't quite know where you're from type of thing. Right. Um, and then how that relates to wine. Tell us about somewhereness. Yeah, sure. It's great. It's uh, a, a term that I was so pleased to stumble across. Um, <laughs> terroir is the French notion of what Matt Kramer, an American wine writer, called somewhereness. So I want to credit him with the term okay. itself. Um, it's footnoted <laughs> and all that. But uh, but yeah, it's it's easier to latch on to for if we don't know terroir or, yeah. that, or can't say it, which mm-hmm. I still can't. But um, but the, the French in particular are very attuned to wanting the grape to express what is truly unique about the grape's own origins and all of the things that that play into that the soil type uh, the age of the vines the the climates the microclimates the individual uh, characteristics of the weather in that particular vintage uh, the aging process even to some extent the story of the producers themselves and how does mm. that sort of play Amazing. into this whole experience. And so terroir is a deeply, um, it's a value, I guess I think I would call it that um, many uh, French winemakers and other winemakers all over the world, old and new world for sure are very keen to. And yeah, some there's, it's also can be polarizing. There's some who's like, Oh, you make way too much a, a big deal out of that. Let's just drink and enjoy the wine <laughs> right. and all that kind of thing. But no, I'm very drawn to that, that notion. 
or it can be so celebrated that it's divisive, that it's almost like a form of nationalism or something. Sure, like yeah. yeah, absolutely. So somewhereness is just sort of everything like that the, the wine tells you or teaches you about its place. And uh, so somewhereness struck me as that's, that's pretty near the beginning because we're talking mm-hmm. about soil, yeah. Yeah. talking mm-hmm. about rootedness, origins, beginnings, all that kind of stuff. And so to explore that on some level as to what, how, has my own experience of terroir contributed to you know shaping who I who find myself yeah. now and who I'm still learning about uh, about who I am. So um, yeah, yeah it's a, there's a lot of probably an entire book could be written just about <laughs> that concept yeah. alone. It felt like oh, if this was going to be a series, I could probably revisit that, and I do in eleven, yes. uh, where I want to come back. And so of in, in, interest. At the beginning, I'm inviting the writer to think about their own journey primarily, but then also then to turn that outward. And that lens of curiosity, that lens of, again, attentiveness to other people's uh, individual journeys and what shaped them, and to get curious about that. Is that a way of being in the world? That, Yeah, so. Yeah, I think it's, it's fantastic. I, I um, you know, in, in a culture that values the immediate and the temporal, you know, quick things going by and anything that can kind of show us this this type of stuff, right? There's also something, um, you know, in, in understanding where we're from, you know, yeah. that speaks to the concept of redemption itself, right? Mm-hmm. That what is it that is being redeemed? What is it that is being, the, what is it that is left? How we are the same, like we're, we don't, we're fully ourselves. We don't become something, you know, different in, in nature, mm-hmm. uh, in terms of whatever it is, salvation or understanding. Um, and so in all of these questions, I think, uh, the somewhereness of things, the origin and identity, you do, like, you speak that well and kind of, I would say, like, responsibly in the book and allow us to ask those questions about ourselves. Mm-hmm. But you're not hemming in. And your, your experience, because some of us, I would think, would be able to say, you know, I grew up here, that was it, I was raised yeah. in this one house. That, is that you? I've got, a, I've got quite an uncomplicated history compared to yours, Nelson. <laughs> yeah. Like, as, I, as I'm reading the book and I'm like, right. well, <laughs> that's significantly less, less, you know... Sure, and def- <laughs> like like there there is something to to how you talk about your story that it, like you're not nailed down to one place. Mm-hmm. Like you, mm-hmm. there's there's like a nomadic kind of quality to it. Um, and I I do wonder like I, I was curious about how that informs how you understand yourself, how you understand, totally. yeah, the yeah. people in in your congregation or the people that are around you. There, there is something to be said for like, well, and where do you get that sense of somewhereness from if there's a lot of somewhereness? Right, right. If there's a bunch mm. of places. Yeah, there was, yeah, there was some aspect of the story as I began to reflect, what, I went to nine different schools yeah, yeah, between yeah, sure and 12? And, and I'm just like, wow, that's, that's not normal. So when, when that finally sort of occurred to yeah. me, yeah. probably as I was actually maybe almost out of high school, I wasn't really thinking about it that much. It was just, this is my life. We're mm-hmm. in three different schools in grade one. Okay. But then to reflect on that and later to get married to someone who grew up in the same town, didn't leave it until uh, sort of oh, Bible college. Very, very, very and different. so, and, and what, uh, what Terry's experience spoke to me about the value of sort of rootedness yep. and mm-hmm. that sort of that deep bloom where you're planted kind of um, perspective on life and the friendships that uh, that she and the community that she experienced and I found myself more willing to 
float from one place to to the next and to yeah. I had this adaptability flexibility to develop new friendship groups quickly um, mm-hmm. but then how deep can the roots go in the midst well, of, of that if I'm moving around so much and yeah, so I, I'm a little curious how then that plays in in your relationship with somebody who maybe doesn't have that kind of tolerance for adaptability right like how, how do you be in in a marriage with someone who who loves like rootedness or is used to their rootedness and you're like let's go here let's try this let's do this totally. it could all be great and she I might be like no i don't think so love totally i think part of it was i i actually wanted what she had right. more than yeah. i had it when i recognized that i oh I, I i lack that but i actually really love it and value it and for so there's some it, the answer lies in the middle somewhere yeah. and i think she also valued to some extent this yeah, ability sure. to Oh, okay. We can pivot. We can move. We can flex. Um, but well, then also some pretty big changes yeah. and stuff. Mm-hmm. Like my, my first encounter totally. with you was a very long time ago at CBC when you were my prof. It was your very Columbia, last semester. Columbia Bible College. Yeah, Columbia Bible College. Because CBC right. for most people means yes, something sorry, different. That's right. <laughs> sorry, just for not us, the Canadian like, broadcast. Sorry, yeah, it kind of brought it down. <laughs> Thanks a lot, there, Todd. I was going to say something meaningful. <laughs> my and, first you know, experience with you at CBC. <laughs> yes. No, hosting, at Colum- you know, Columbia Bible College. What was that like? 2008, 2009, something like that. And then you made a pretty big shift, like left there and planted a church. And there's also been some pretty shifts, big shifts that have happened in, in that world. Um, I I am curious how some of the ways that, that you were ministered to, that you were able to have some level of spiritual care during your sabbatical, what that meant as you then transitioned back into Mm. full-time So you, you were artisan before and after the sabbatical, right? Yeah, correct. Yeah, we started artisan in 2009, and then I had my first sabbatical in 2018. Yes, and then returned yeah. to artisan and still yeah. at yeah. artisan. That's right. But you reference in the book that one of your friends and another minister left. That's right. In that time, okay. Which so, is a yeah. So anyway, as Alice said, what was it like going yeah. back? Yeah, right. Yeah, going back, I think... Um, yeah, I mean, the season is, even to think back to that season, um, pre-COVID, it was, uh, it was really pre-days. refreshing to come back. And some of that wasn't even just that I was completely deflated before I went on sabbatical. Sure. Like sabbatical, <laughs> again, someone said, you know, Sabbath ought to be rhythm, not reward. Uh, and so mm. it's not like, well, oh, put. you so deserve that sabbatical. Well, or, or you're so burned out that you have to get it. Yeah, I had exactly. a sabbatical. I was the same. I wasn't burned out, but I... Right. Yeah. yeah, so there was a sense of like, oh, I'm not... I still have something left in the tank, but I recognize this is a very, very good thing to do, and I wanted to do it. So, And it was a good season of, of ministry. There was a sense of... Of I was in my sweet spot in terms of my particular role yeah. and was very happy to be there and then happy to return um, and to to delve into some of the things, some initiatives that I had set in motion just before going and to, yeah, to be greeted upon return again and to just be welcomed back. And I love being in this community. And, you know, so it was um, it was good. It was just a, there was a, an extra measure of refreshment and life and vitality, mm-hmm. I think, that, that there mm-hmm. was returning back. And I'm due again next year and I'm, I can't oh, wait. Are you? Yeah. yeah. Are it's you been five years now. I don't think so. No, it's <laughs> something been, a little different. Yeah. You'll, yeah. You'll we'll like, see. You know, I, I do want to do some wine touring for sure. You'll get involved in yeah. like, you know, hockey or something. No. Something. Yeah. something How long I, was the sabbatical? Three months. Okay. Plus uh, I could take vacation time mm. along mm-hmm. with it. And uh, I, I think I took three or four weeks in addition. I had a question too, about one of the other central concepts in the book and that I'll call it generally like clearing away. Mm. There's a, there's mm. a lot in there um, about pruning 
So yes, in, in yeah. reference to wine, pruning, shoot thinning, and crop thinning. Mm-hmm. The metaphor to the spiritual life is quite obvious, but particularly in a time where, again, uh, people are pushing away from maybe some of their church experiences before. So the pruning isn't like, I mean, when you were growing up in an evangelical church or whatever, the pruning, the, you know, these kinds of verses like, were taught to there. us as like, you know, you know, as we say, like throw out your secular music or something like pruning and, you know, get rid of, your, you know, stop those friendships that are bad or something. Right. Uh, this is a much more responsible and deeper, deeper consideration that, um, as to what pruning and, you know, crop thinning and stuff is. And so maybe the metaphor now is, is a little bit like all those places that, you know, directed and kind of contained my spiritual understanding before require some pruning, mm. some clearing away so that I can see better. So t- give us a brief reflection on maybe in your wine experience or your spiritual experience, your leadership experience, yeah. what you would say about pruning or crop thinning or shoot thinning. Yeah, that's really good. Wow. The, yeah, and the first... The first place my mind goes when you mention that, especially when you think about, uh, is on the lens of spiritual practice, and uh, such a um, an important intention. I think a growing intention for me has been the sense of in what way is my life reflecting the way of Jesus in the world, and so it's that sense of how am I practicing the way? Mm-hmm. Again, even remembering some of the early mm-hmm. Christian history, they weren't called Christians; they were right. called followers of the way or yeah. practi- practitioners of the way. So this is about a way of being in the world, and so to to give myself permission to evaluate which practices um, intentional. Um, or just habits that sort of are formed and to sort of mm-hmm. do a little bit of a inventory of, of my own sort of habits and practices. What am I spending? How you spend a morning is how you spend your day. How you spend your days is how you spend your life. That sort of idea. So to break it down to the minutia mm-hmm. and um, to say, well, what is serving? Uh, even to get back to kind of rule of life mm-hmm. kind of ideas sure. and, and that sense of like, yeah. what is this? <laughs> how am I shaping my life? And how, what agency do I have to make changes there where I need to? Um, and I mean, one example that comes to mind, and we talk about practices in one of the chapters as well, is expanding the definition of what counts as spiritual practice Sure. by saying, yeah, what, well, what is life giving in the truly deepest and, and good sense of, of the word? And so to even be audacious is to say wine tasting can yep. be a spiritual practice in that sense. Uh, for it's funny so that we still have to say layers. that's audacious, so, right? Yeah. And like we're, always, some we're always apologizing to those previous kind of yeah. Understanding. yeah. Yeah. Because it, it, it just is. It just is. Yeah. That's right, yeah. So there's something there about that clearing away pruning that's mm-hmm. always in motion. So like, what is serving now? What is serving my own spiritual growth, yeah. my deepening, my root, rootedness? And yeah, for me, probably the most consistent spiritual practice of the last 20 years has been just receiving spiritual direction. That's been indispensable as mm-hmm. a practice. So that's been a constant, but perhaps some of the other practices that I did... Um, you know, I was really into scripture and uh, Lectio Divina and yeah. journaling. And I'm yeah. doing a lot less journaling. And maybe it's because I don't need to be in my head or capture quite as much down um, as I think I need to. But to have it handy, uh, if I need to unburden <laughs> something and just write some stuff <laughs> totally down. Yeah. So to have freedom to say this doesn't have to be daily. Even that needs right. some, sort of some un, undoing mm. within our, uh, however we've been shaped culturally. I just think it's church, amazing but, like uh, that again, some of the ways that we can hear God, the presence of the divine, we can, those of us who are Christian, you know, like that Christ plays in 10,000 places or whatever, is uh, 
somehow, so I picture you doing this in a cellar or something with these people, um, that you're able to hear when you almost like stop thinking about God and stop mm. being the, the pastor and all the expectations and the rules and, you know, uh, whatever it is that kind of directs that. And, and so that, that, cause that clearing away section is, is that's such an interesting part of, of the vineyard, mm. right? It's in, in essential that absolutely what it means for something to be fully alive means that some death is required too. Right. Um, and so I, th- I just think it's beautiful and I think it's a great section of the book that people should mm-hmm. read and, and uh, yeah. Thanks Todd. Um, I also, so as we kind of move to close, we'll get, somebody has to ask the one question we always ask at the end. Before we do uh, the whole thing, you know, you're mentioning Lectio Divina and all these things and the monastic things. I just picture you like, enjoying wine with a bunch of monks <laughs> yes yes please or beer yeah. yep yeah well, or beer okay yeah. Yeah. sure Trappists. we don't need to be elitist about this right. yeah and, uh, and the and so we'll uh we'll kind of add that to our prayerful consideration of uh, mm. but somebody asked nelson the question we asked to end all the time yeah i can do that um i mean so much of your book um it gave me hope and the, hmm. the sense of place I enjoyed so much because I do have that familiarity with the, the Naramata bench and the Okanagan and they're growing. And um, I just, I think it's beautiful. And, and being able to picture my, my parents, um, their neighbor grow grapes for a local vineyard. So I know the, the toil um, in, in the field and what it takes to prune and all of those things. So I could picture so much of that and just sit with it, which was hmm. wonderful. It was beautiful. Hmm. Um, but uh, that said, the thing that we like to kind of close with is what is it right now that is giving you hope for whether that be spiritually, for your future, for, uh, you know, it can be a very personal question or existential. <laughs> what, world, yeah, the king, world. Um, a new king you've been waiting putting for you on Charles the spot. and finally where been... Where are you seeing or finding hope in your day to day? That's good. Yeah, that's great. Wow, this could get a little meta, but... Um, <laughs> It's such, yeah, it's a great question. I appreciate the freedom to explore it <laughs> at whatever sort of level makes sense to me. I, I, I listened in on a session, uh, online webinar put on by the Center for Action and Contemplation mm-hmm. just a couple of weeks ago. It was called The Future of Christianity. Mm. And one of the big themes that I've been thinking of through COVID is Big C Church and uh, the it's problematic history uh my place in that as a pastor and spiritual practitioner what that means now um yeah racism reconciliation all of Mm -hmm. the unveiling on so many levels that has happened um and not wanting that to be a blip but actually legitimately wanting Mm -hmm. to learn unlearn dismantle all of those sorts of things so i'm on my own deconstructive and reconstructive journey as a human being um, and at the same time, I'm invited to <laughs> bear some, some burdens of a, a church community. Yeah. Yeah. And again, find that, that line between what's mine to bear and to hold and, and what's God's and what's the rest mm. of the community and how do we do with the one another as well, all of that kind of stuff. But um, the future of Christianity, so I kind of went in wondering what this discussion, and again, Richard Rohr, uh, Barbara Holmes, mm-hmm. uh, Brian McLaren, mm-hmm. yep. forgetting who the fourth member of the faculty was that was oh james finley and so they were all part of this conversation there were breakouts and there was silence at the beginning and it was just i came away from it feeling maybe somewhat surprisingly hopeful Mm -hmm. that there there are a lot of 
a lot of branches, I guess, within uh, Christianity or those who would ascribe to this faith who are wanting to reimagine mm-hmm. what this ought to look like, that there is a better way. It's not even that something that we have to reinvent. It is some, in some respects a returning to yeah. way pre-Reformation sort of values and, and practices and things and emphases early church, you know, fathers and mothers, all of that kind of stuff is a returning. But this contemplative pathway has a lot of richness. It's not perfect. Yeah. There are, you know, skeletons in its closet also, but there are, um, there's some richness there that I think is worth um, revisiting and claiming. So that gives me some hope and that I'm not the only one thinking yeah. about that no. stuff. Yeah, you're, you're definitely not. Yeah. You're in the right room. So it's exactly, there's <laughs> yeah. so well, many folks and, so you know, you're feel heartened by it. Yeah, yeah. and your interest in wine and your, is, is that reminder that those kind of um, institutional settings that we're familiar with, particularly evangelical church, but not only, you know, where our whole spirituality is kind of contained somewhat, owns somewhat, our allegiance is to like one particular church and, one, and now more and more you see like there's fewer and fewer full-time pastors or something and that's not only a story of decline that's a story of um something's happening here and you show us that with like your reflection on the center for action and action and contemplation um so thanks for Mm -hmm. for saying that because i do we do hear the hope in that and so uh, and we're gonna enjoy i have a feeling that (laughs) we're gonna buy some of this wine i would think right yes yeah (laughs) and uh and that we'll enjoy some wine tasting and the rest so thank you so much for joining us it's fantastic thanks for coming out here thank you friends it's an honor rector's cupboard releases a new episode every other friday the podcast is production of reflector project hosts are todd weeb and allison williams cupboard master for tastings and locations is ken bell Production and social media by Amanda Mina. For past episodes and other content, visit rectorscupboard.ca. Thanks for listening.